Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Another busy week for me. They don't seem to be getting any slower, Hollister. I know, you know, I just wish winter would set in so that I, so that I could have a reason to be holed up. I mean, it was such a beautiful day today, and I made myself go out. So I don't have as many things to talk about this week, but we still have a lot to go over, right? Well, I thought you'd be very excited because did you see who is going to host the Tonys this year? I did. My, my true love, who I told you I wanted to have a baby with. Yes, your boyfriend, Kevin Spacey. I know he doesn't want to have a baby with me, but yeah, I think he's going to be a great host. You know, he's a wonderful improv. If you watch him in interviews, some some actors are really good in interviews and others aren't. And he's very, very good with timing and everything else. I think he'll be excellent. Well, you know, this is what's so ironic. I mean, he's won two Oscars. He's won a Tony. He got his start in the theater. He was the artistic director of the Old Vic in London. But did you see how many other people they asked first to host? Well, no, but I'm not sure he wants you to tell people that. Well, this is something I found so funny, which shows his just signature humor. Can I just point out that if you wanted to have his baby, you wouldn't tell everybody that a bunch of people were invited (laughs) first. Okay, who? Go ahead, tell us. Tina Fey, Neil Patrick Harris... Hugh Jackman, James Corden, they all had scheduling conflicts or said no for one reason or the other. Okay, so this just goes to show Kevin Spacey's sense of humor. Quote, I was their second choice for usual suspects, fourth choice for American president, and 15th choice to host this year's Tony Awards. I think my career is definitely going in the right direction. That's <laughs> <laughs> really cute. See, he's, he's not too proud. He's not too proud. And he can sing. We came on next to closing, best on the bill, lovers and So we got some, a lot of emails this week, a lot of things going on. We did, and I know you won't be as excited about this, but this will excite many. The X-Files is returning for a special 10 that. episode I season. Know. Lalu, wake up, girl, <laughs> There, it's coming. Yeah. When they did the reboot last year, that special six-episode revival... I did not realize that was the number two broadcast drama last year. It drew. I an, didn't know that. Huh. Yep, it drew an average multi-platform audience of almost 16 million people. Wow, amazing! Yeah. I tried. I, I watched numerous, numerous episodes, and I just couldn't find it. I just couldn't find my way through it. A friend of mine said something so funny. She said when this when the series first came out in 1993, she thought it was so out there. Right, I guess where the truth is residing. But she said now, for her, it feels more like a documentary. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Hollister, I am assuming you've probably watched your typical one million shows this week. Okay, I, you know, I'm not going to start off that way, I refuse. But yes, I have. I'm impressed by you. <laughs> I don't sure know how you, you do it. Um, yes, I did. I watched a lot of things. And I also, I loved one of the emails that we received from someone who actually is teaching at the college level. And she loves to teach books and then back them up with having the class go see the movie and then discuss the combined total. And I just thought that was so interesting and so right on top, you know, target for what we like as well. And did you notice that one of the books that she did was To Kill a Mockingbird? Pam from Texas. We just want to give a huge shout out. And it is amazing to me how many movies and TV shows coming out are based on books. We're going to mention quite a few 
in this yeah. podcast. Hollywood loves stories that already have these built-in audiences because they're based on pre-existing properties. So, you know, good storytelling is good storytelling. Well, the other thing is a lot of actors are buying books now. They're getting the books early and they are now, you know, trying to pave their own actor way by purchasing the book and then getting it produced so that they can star in it. You know, I mean, you know, Reese Witherspoon to start off does that all the time now between Gone Girl, well, she didn't star in it, but Gone Girl and um, Wild and... Um, you know, Big big Little Lies. I mean, all of those were things where she read the book and purchased it. Yep. And it's amazing how quickly these books are optioned. They're usually optioned before they're even published. It's just amazing <laughs> to me. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, it, this just leads in perfectly to I did Girl Boss came out last week and Netflix launched it. And it's based on the Nasty Girl website creator, Sophia Amoroso. I want this. I'll give you eight bucks for it. No way. The tag says 12. Nine bucks, and I'll give you some free business advice. Deal. So, what's the advice? This is an original 1970s East-West calfskin motorcycle jacket in perfect condition. You just got played. Poor Netflix just couldn't get the timing right on this because <laughs> NastyGirl.com happened to file Chapter 11 three weeks ago. And oh, so- now it's broke, girl. Low overhead, steady demand, high margins. You're killing it. But, yeah, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't see the series. It doesn't, because uh, it's a really, really good series. I actually liked it a lot, and the screenwriter sort of nailed it for me. You know, her name is uh, Kay Cannon, and she said it always comes down to this idea of the female lead having to be incredibly likable, Mrs. Cannon said. I wanted to tell the story of a flawed woman that is not a fairy tale. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> and she does it really, really well. And Sophia, who who's, you know, played by Tomorrowland star Britt Robertson. Have you heard of her before? I have. You know what she was in recently? What? A Dog's Purpose. Oh, I didn't see that movie. Yep. You did, right. The the character in this, and, and by the way, one of the things that she said in doing this character is she spent a lot of time with Emma Russo, you know, who it was all based on. It was based on the book that she wrote, by the way. And yeah, she said it's very hard to then spend so much time with the person this is supposed to be about and then go on and try to please her on the screen. I think there was a you know, few things around that. So what exactly is your business? You know how people flip houses? Well, I flip clothes. Boom! Dollar, dollar bills, y'all! Here's the thing. I think she's plucky in it. I, you know, and plucky is just something that we're not seeing in a lot of films and, and, and series. So I really like it. And I love that she doesn't take him back. And I'm not going to say more than that. And she doesn't get everything right. And she brings hope to the idea that a dream actually could come true without a lot of money behind it. So I, I recommend it. Now, Hollister, I'm so curious. Were there any special lessons to be learned about women in business? The lesson to be learned is that just because you don't have the money doesn't mean you shouldn't do something. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But it'll be mine. And secondly, her attention to detail. There's so many times during this where she stopped what she was doing to go sit and think about it and think about it over and over and over again until she got the answer. Like, for example, what was she going to call it? You know, it takes a, almost an entire episode of what, how is she going to name this? 
So she didn't breeze through things that really, truly do matter. It should be noted, though, that um, that she stepped down as chief executive of Nasty Gal uh, many, many moons ago, and it's now been acquired by this British retailer company called Boohoo. And so she's no longer with the company, but she also has started this website called Girl Boss, and where she's holding rallies around female success. So everyone involved in the show has been totally understanding, she said, of the fact that this is a real story of the ups and downs of someone who dared to do something larger than life, she said. And with that comes bumps in the road. And so she's happy to acknowledge that she hasn't quite gotten it right. And um, I, I think it's worth seeing. It's a good series, strong series. Go ahead. Underestimate me. When I heard you were going to be watching it and that it dealt with the fashion industry, I had to look up to see who did the costumes. <laughs> okay. And I saw Audrey Fisher, who's done the clothes for everything from that 70s show to True Blood. I just thought this was really interesting. She did her master's thesis on the role of costume oh in God. Frida Kahlo's self-portraits. I thought that was so interesting. She did the movie Milk. So I I have to ask you, Hollister, how were the clothes in Girl Boss? It's funny. You know, it's really funny you should ask that because I was actually going to bring this up. I know that I offered this to you as should we watch this together? And your answer was after taking a look at it, not so much. But every single outfit she wears in it is something you would wear. Really? Yes. And and also, you know, um, I think you should watch it just for the clothing alone, because the combination of how she puts things together is very sort of eclectic, but with a sense of style and flowiness to it. And, and we see her with clothing a lot and her sort of stylizing clothing. And that, by the way, you know, is is worth the watch as well. I mean, it's really fun to see what you could do by going into, a you know, an old clothing shop, a recycled clothing or whatever it's called. I've never done that, but um, <laughs> secondhand vintage clothing, secondhand rose, <laughs> lightly uh, worn, <laughs> twice around consignment okay. Okay, shopping, I, you know, there are a couple times in there I'm like, oh my God, that's an O'Toole outfit. So if you want to know what O'Toole wears, it's secondhand it clothing. Sure. <laughs> no, not at all. But you know, that's the funny thing about it is the clothing she chooses, it, it isn't about secondhand. It's about incredibly stylized, very, very strong uh, uh, pieces of, of clothing that were really, really made, made well. She's not buying crap, you know. So I don't know. I, I think it's a good show. I do. And if you like fashion, for sure you should watch it. Well, Halster, this might be a great transition into the new Emily Dickinson movie. because <laughs> Emily we, Under the Bed is what I like Since we established in prior podcasts, I do share the same birthday with Emily Dickinson, who basically wore one outfit her entire life. I know. You know, she yeah, never got yeah. over the death of her parents and so she transitioned from wearing black to wearing white and wore that wrapper until the day she died so i'm so curious what you thought about a quiet passion i'm just so surprised you don't want to see it because first of all well if you like it i'll definitely go see it okay i can't take that pressure so (laughs) i don't i don't want to be that (laughs) okay but here's the here's the thing Okay, first of all, it's very, it's done in a very unusual way, almost as if you're in this dream sequence. And it starts out where Emily is actually, you know, at social gatherings. She goes to the theater, and then slowly but surely, the entire movie slows down, almost as if it's in slow mo. 
And then she never leaves the house and then she never leaves a room. And uh, her poetry is interwoven into the dynamics of the household, which I looked up afterward. And many of them are actually true. Her brother was a philandering kind of guy who fell in love with somebody other than his wife, who Emily was madly, madly close to. Um, and so that was that was a big trauma for her because she was extremely committed to her family. And they lived next door. Well, they did, but she never left the house. So mm-hmm. I don't think it would have mattered if they lived down the street. In the end, they had to come to her. But at one point, um, she says, I can't imagine wanting anything other than my family, meaning I can't imagine that there's more to life than being where I am and what I am. And the other thing is, I didn't realize that she tried often to be published and because she was a woman, they didn't want to publish her under her own name. Mm-hmm. And they did publish a few of her pieces, but not that many. And the one you quoted last week, you know, uh, I, I'm nobody, who are you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the film. It's oh, actually in the film, yeah. That makes me very happy. Yeah, and I think that, you know, our actor who we heard talking about it last year at the Provincetown Film Festival. Ms. Cynthia Nixon. Exactly. She did a great job. She really did. She's uh, she's strong in this film, and you can tell she loves playing this this woman who was extremely opinionated, so much so that she actually bucked sort of... Um, the stature of the times of how women were supposed to behave. She was extremely controversial inside the family, pushed mm-hmm. them to limits that none of them really wanted to be in. And I did check, you know, go back and check and, and look after the film to see if most of it was true, and it is. So if you if you care about Emily's poetry, I would suggest going, but I will also tell you it's a long haul, and it's extremely depressing. Huh. Well, I might just have to check it out. I'm going to play a clip here of Cynthia Nixon. She gave a really interesting interview about Emily Dickinson. One thing she said is that if Emily Dickinson were alive today, Cynthia Nixon is convinced she would be huge on Twitter (laughs) because she (laughs) said she's somebody who desired communion and loved to communicate, but wanted to do it from the privacy of her own world. In this clip here, she's asked whether Emily Dickinson were a feminist. I think she's a feminist. Yeah. But I don't think that she would have thought of herself that way. And because I think that, I think that there were certain political movements that she admired. I think she thought, you know, the fight for women's right to vote. I think she mm-hmm. thought that was you know, had a lot of good in it, and I think certainly abolition and, you know. But I think that she was so wary of any mass movement that I don't think she would have signed up for anything. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Because I think her thinking was so personal and so idiosyncratic, and when you join a movement, you know, there are certain things I think you have to get on board with. And I think that that was almost the most important thing for her was her individual personhood. Go Emily. I saw another interview with Jennifer Ely, who plays Emily Dickinson's sister, Lavinia, in the film. She said they filmed some of it in Massachusetts, but they filmed some of it in a studio in Belgium, and they Hmm. recreated Emily Dickinson's house to the inch. I mean, it's a perfect recreation of the house. And for anyone who hasn't been to Emily Dickinson's home in Amherst, Massachusetts, it's totally worth a visit. I've been actually, when my daughter was touring, um, touring the school, I went over to sit in her house and 
It was so funny. They had just three or four people going through the tour, and I, of course, can't be bothered to listen to a tour. So after we went upstairs and we saw the pristine nature of her room, which has nothing in it, so there was not much for me to look at there, I just went outside and I sat in the garden for about an hour and a half by myself, and nobody came into the garden on a bench that, you know, you know, was a stone bench that could have been there for a couple of centuries. I don't really know, but... Um, I I had a moment there that was really, really lovely. And you can see how she loved, you know, just sit in the garden by herself. You know, she really, there's much to talk about to yourself when you're by yourself in a garden, you know? Absolutely. And they give a great tour. It was so cool being in <laughs> Emily Dickinson's bedroom where you could see the window where she would lower freshly baked cookies for her nephew and niece out the window and the bed where, you know, she wrote all her poetry and hid her little scraps of paper under the mattress and the desk that she would pull up to the window so she could see the circus go by when they were in town. I loved this tour. Well, by the way, according to the movie, her father gave her permission to write in the night. She wrote between 12 and 3 every night. That's when in the middle of the night. Something else I have in common with Emily Dickinson. I know. Well, to say nothing of the fact that, you know, that's when I write. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night naturally and I often will write in the middle of the night. But the middle of the night time, she said it's a time that's just for her when there's nobody around. She really likes that time. So, And other people I know do, too. So Now, how was Jennifer Ely playing her sister? Well, you know, it's so funny because we've seen her. I mean, she seems to play Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson roles, you know. Uh, she was in Pride and Prejudice. The Colin Firth version. Yeah. And we did a podcast about her last year when she was in the film Little Men with Greg Kinnear. Yep. Exactly. She's very good. You know, she, you know what, I, I there's a word that you can describe her in every single film I've ever seen is, is um, um, anxiously earnest. Oh. That's the phrase that she always appears to me on the screen is anxiously earnest, you know, a little anxious, but also so earnest and so hopeful. And, you know, so I, I really like her. I thought she was great. She really looks like Meryl Streep. And guess where Jennifer Ely was born? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Oh, I did know that. I read yes. that today. Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. Ex- See, exactly. all roads lead back to the I River know, Run International I know. Film Festival. Absolutely does. Absolutely. You know, I came across this quote by the real Lavinia Dickinson, and I thought this was so interesting that she was kind of the pragmatic family member who took care of all the details for the family. Okay, this is what the real-life Lavinia had to say. Emily had to think. She was the only one of us who had that to do. Father believed and mother loved and Austin had Amherst and I had the family to take care of. Okay, now this is what Emily once said about her sister and they were very, very close. She was so sad. Emily said, I don't see much of Vinny. She's mostly dusting stairs. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Oh, poor Lavinia. I mean, she started out from what I've read about her you know, this very social flirt, and she never got married either. Not that that's sad, but, you know, she was just always taking care of family business. Well, and you know what? That was a life back then. Truly was. Yep. And yet she ends up with none of the fame. Speaking of taking care of family business, tonight, Hulu's uh, The Handmaid's Tale launches. And 
oh my God, the lead up to this. I don't think I've seen any series on television with a lead up quite this strong. Hulu's releasing the first three episodes tonight and then the remaining seven hours, they're going to release release it weekly. And there was conversation about should they release it in a way that could be binge watched. And the director said he didn't really want to do that. He wants to layer it out. But I thought that our hashtag blast from the past film should be the 1990 version uh, with Faye Dunaway and Duvall. And Natasha Richardson, Aidan Quinn, Elizabeth McGovern, otherwise known as Lady Cora from Downton Abbey. And of course, this is another movie based on the book by Margaret Atwood. What'd you do? How'd they get you? We tried to cross the border. What about you? Gender treachery. I like girls. Christ, they could have sent you to the colonies. They don't send you to the colonies if your ovaries are still jumping. I watched it again because I felt like if I, I can't wait for the Hulu uh, version to come out. There's a lot of, of interesting things around it. First of all, the conversation now is with with um, with the debate around women's issues and women's rights possibly being uh, being taken a bit away with changes to um, Planned Parenthood and possible abortion things that are we going, you know, are we taking steps back into a, a situation that was similar to where we are? And I think that's one of the reasons why this is, you know, such a important area. But Pinter, who did the script for The Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale that we're talking about, who did scripts for... Betrayal and French <laughs> Lieutenant's Woman. He was nominated for two Oscars. And he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2005. Okay, so here's the thing. He got so exhausted trying to do this that he said he just told them, contact Atwood and have her do the rewrites. I can't do it. And here's what he's, and he reasoned, I didn't think an author would want to F up her own work, is what he said. As it turned out, I was wrong. (laughs) Okay, he was not, did not even want his name on this script. And he refused to have this, I wanted to read the script because we, I just also reread the book. And he wouldn't let the script be published, so it wasn't published. But he's done that with a couple of films that he's done. So, for example, The French Lieutenant's Woman, he wasn't happy with the end of that as well. And most notably, The Remains of the Day, which I think was so beautifully written. Mm -hmm. And he refused to allow his name to be attached to that for the same reason. But he said that one of the difficulties, um, and I think it's true, that the difficulties in making a film out of a book, which is so much of a one-woman interior monologue, uh, with the challenge of playing this woman who can't convey her feelings to, to the world in any of the visions we're going to see, you know, we can't know what she's thinking. So, so much of it has to be made evident, um, you know, through over over you know voiceover narration that it does make it really difficult to make this film but the series was launched at Tribeca this week at the Tribeca Film Festival and it people are coming out with rave reviews for it so somehow they might have done it you know better than the 1990s version which did not do that well in the box office and there were lots of criticism around it so you know I don't know that I agree with Harold Pinter because when you think about the book there were a lot of very visual elements that I think do lend themselves to the big screen when you think about the robes they had to wear and the scarlet color and the oppression and the public executions I don't think he achieved the right script in the 1990 version yeah. He's probably sterile. Don't they test them? The men? No. 
I saw it, and I, it was very powerful to me, but I didn't really recognize it as anything that I could relate to, seriously relate to in any way. And now, watching it again now, I do relate to it, actually. So I, I'm very interested to hear what our listeners think about it after they're watching it tonight. And I don't think we should review it till you know, a few weeks into the series, but really looking forward to it. And everybody says it's great. So The Handmaid's Tale premiering tonight. Let us know what you think. Hulu, Hulu. And I bet you can get a week's free uh, thing to Hulu if you want to watch the first three um, episodes and see if you like it. Okay, the last thing that I saw without you is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is based on Rebecca Skloot's book. Another movie based on a book. I know, there you go. It's got this great beginning that explaining the sheer enormous impact of Henrietta's cells. Scientists had been trying to get cells to grow outside of the human body, but they would always die until Henrietta's cells came along. I want to write a book about your mother. It's a great first five minutes where you just are sort of educated on the science behind how enormous her contribution of her cells was and how she was, you know, just never occurred to me that cells only have come from one person that have done everything from AIDS to polio, you know. Everyone's saying Henrietta Lacks donated themselves. Didn't donate nothing. They took them and didn't ask. But here's the problem with the film. The Henrietta doesn't show up in the film until 38 minutes into it. Instead, the film starts with the author's quest to get inside the family and Henrietta's daughter's struggles, which struggle to take over center stage of what should have really been all about Henrietta. So from my perspective, they let we're not we don't get enough in this film of Henrietta and yet um, Oprah plays the daughter and um, she's amazing she's I take back everything I've ever said about how she should not be acting my whole life what I care about is knowing about my mother but you said that I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I think your take on why she shouldn't be acting is not the quality of her acting which I find immense but you just thought it was her little socialism idea where she should give more room for up-and-coming actors yeah. to find roles. And now I'm beginning to realize that she clearly loves acting and people should do what they love and I'm an idiot. So I loved her in The Color Purple. Yeah. Well, this is clearly a performance that rivals that and I'm sure she's going to be up in awards uh, season around it. But the, but the show is not going to be an awards season because... It's just too much about the Oprah person who is the daughter who just never got over the death of her mother, which really had nothing to do with her cells. She just lost her mother at a very young age and had a very difficult life. But that's really not the story I came to hear. And so there are a million burning questions that are left out. Like, for example, why Henrietta's cells? Like, why did her cells grow and nobody else's? Like, what about her cells was different? You know, where's the you know where's Waldo? Her cells were where's Waldo? <laughs> what you know? Why? I, I would like to have gotten that answer. And secondly, um, have anybody else's cells grown outside their body after hers? You know, was it because she was black that she got lost in the shuffle and the family never got credit for her um, her cells? But it seems as if that the law, at least back then, was that as long as you didn't say where the cells came from, any hospital could take cells that they had taken from you and they could take pieces of the cells and do research on them so that they could promote and, and, and solve some of the you know, great, um, great problems of our time. So 
So, uh, you know, I would like to have had a little more information on Henrietta, and I didn't get it. And by the way, she's brilliantly played by... Renee Elise Goldsberry. (laughs) I love that you're here. Anyway, um, she does a really good job of showing this vivacious young woman, vibrant, who loses her life um, to a disease. And... But I, I, I just am not getting much more than that. So, And I don't think the story of the family's struggles after Henrietta dies really should be part of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks because that's not what the title says I'm going to get. You want to go digging up graves, you need to stop. I am not yeah. stopping! And so film, you know, I, I got to give it a B-, B minus, but it's worth seeing just to see Oprah do her thing. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. You famous, just nobody knows it. Congratulations, Oprah. Well done. And I take back everything I ever said about how you shouldn't be an actor. And now we're going to move to 13 Reasons Why. Hey. Hey. Oh, my gosh. I know. So in honor of 13 Reasons Why... We, for our list of six this week, are going to do our six favorite high school movies. We are. And can I just say, I had like 10. Oh, really? I'm only going to mention three, but I had like 10. I really did. I really did. Wow. I know. Really fabulous. So, okay. So why don't you kick us off? What do you want to start with? Okay. It's a movie I've mentioned before, but I'm going to start with Perks of Being a Wallflower, starring Emma Watson and Logan Lerman. And is there like, an Emily Dickinson thing in this? <laughs> no, there's not. But like, like 13 Reasons Why, Kate Walsh also played the mother huh. in Perks of Being a Wallflower. Dylan McDermott played the father. Okay. Based on the book by Stephen Chbosky, uh-huh. who also did the screenplay. And he's the guy we mentioned in our Beauty and the Beast podcast because he wrote the screenplay for the Emma Watson version. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start with Dead Poets Society. Oh, that's a great choice, Hollister. Yeah, Robin Williams, Ethan Hawke. I think it's Ethan Hawke's finest moment, for sure. I think he's amazing in this film. You don't get away that easy. Picture Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. Go on. A, a, a madman. What kind of madman? Don't think about it. Just answer again. A crazy man. No, oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Oh, uh, a, a sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy, there's a poet in you after all. And when he does Shakespeare as part of of the film, uh, I, I want to see him do entire Shakespeare. I mean, he is really, really good. Anyway, Dead Poets Society is my choice for my first go-around, and I, I loved it. I watched that movie maybe every five years or so. I don't know. I've watched it more than once. Is it Robert Sean Leonard from House? Is he the one that always gets the stationary set from his father for his birthday every year? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was written by Tom Schulman. He uh, was talking about Samuel Pickering, who was a teacher he had in boarding school, who apparently must have taught the way Robin Williams taught. So really, really strong. But also, you know, there was a negative review at the time. Robert e- Roger Ebert did a negative review, but everyone else came right out of the gate saying it was absolutely wonderful. And it was, you know, for best, you know, picture nomination. Um, Do you know what Roger Ebert didn't like about it? Uh, he just said it was maudlin and sappy. Oh, maybe it brought back his own high school trauma. <laughs> yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> um, okay, what's your next one? What do you got next? Okay, I'm going to go with Easy A from 2010. This is the huh. one that really put Emma Stone on my radar, where in this movie she figured out a way to kind of own the social media and invert the power structure 
and rumors of high school. Also based on a book, The Scarlet Letter. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I never saw that. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do Hoosiers, um, which oh. was Gene Hackman. Yeah, Gene Hackman's film, uh, where he plays. It's based on a true story of um, this small town basketball team that actually gets to the Indiana State Finals, which, by the way, Indiana is basketball. They live and breathe basketball. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, really, really great performance, I think, uh, by him. But I also love I love the ethics and morals that come out all through it, both by the team members as well as Gene Hackman. And it's just, it's just a really great message. I think, you know, we could definitely do, in my mind, hashtag Blast from the Past film would be Hoosiers because... Um, I think it's something you can watch with your kids on a you know Sunday night while you're ordering a pizza or something. And I think there's lots to talk about there. So, so I'm going with that. Okay. Well, my last one, I'm going to end with a happy one. Clueless from 1995. <laughs> oh my God, that's such Just a great choice. Boiled Valley Girl playing matchmaker. And as you'll note, all three of mine were based on books. because It's based of course, on Jane Austen, my fave, right? That's right. Her book, Emma. Emma. And it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right, people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, squish in extra place settings, and, like, people were on mismatched chairs and all. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. Wow. You guys talk like grown-ups. Oh, well, this is a really good school. It wasn't that long ago I saw Alicia Silverstone get interviewed by Oprah about how she had suffered for years from asthma and insomnia and all kinds of things. And when she went vegan, a lot of her issues cleared up. So she wrote a book called The Kind Diet, and she still has a website called thekindlife.com, which is an interactive supplement to her book. An interesting new path there. Right, and she actually, she, she disappeared for like 15 years. She's back now, but she disappeared for a long, long time. Uh, but she also, I thought, did uh, acted brilliantly in that movie. It's not an easy role to play because nope. you can border on the absurd and then you've lost it. And I think she carried it through through the whole thing. So what a great choice. I love that choice. Oh, as if. All right, I'm going to end with A Walk to Remember. And I, I I thought about not doing this. Like, you probably never even heard of this movie, right? <laughs> the title rings some faint little bell. Okay, it's Mandy Moore and Shane West. And it's based on the Nicholas Sparks... <laughs> <laughs> book about this young girl who's this major Christian in her high school. And Shane, of course, is the cool boy who's getting in trouble all the time and they fall in love. And um, alas, she dies at the end of this, you know, disease that he didn't know she had, but it doesn't matter because they lived on through each other's fabulousness. And I thought about not doing it, but I want to be true to myself. And I love that movie. I loved watching it. And if I, you know, if when I'm dialing through TV, which I don't really do anymore, but, you know, back in the day, if it was on, I would always watch it again. So I decided to do a walk to remember, and I'm going to hold my head up high when I do it. So I don't want any back talk online about about my choice here. Okay, um, well, I know Pam from Texas said that one of her great discussions is to kill a mockingbird. And something tells me that I don't know that she's discussed Nicholas Sparks yet with her okay. students, but you one know never what? knows. You're such a snob. I'm uh, moving <laughs> right along. Okay, which leads us into 13 Reasons Why, which I asked you to watch because I had seen it. It's um, it's a Netflix original. Based on a book by Jay Asher. And did you know this was his debut novel? 
It has sold over 3 million copies, has been translated into 35 languages, the number one New York Times bestseller. It's been on and off that list for nine years straight. Yeah. And I feel a little disquieted by it all because uh, the, we have to talk about it. The premise is this young woman in high school commits suicide. Hey, it's Hannah. Hannah Baker. Settle in, because I'm about to tell you the story of my life. More specifically, why my life ended. And if you're listening to this tape, you're one of the reasons why. In my mind, is a bit terrifying, and there's much discussion about this and everything from the New York Times down to just online conversations about... Um, it, it's just I'm I'm worried about it, you know it's it's about revenge but in this sort of positive way uh, it's brilliant it's unfolding etc but it's I have this terror that it will glorify the exit strategy she took for those that are bullied and and I'm not alone in this everyone's talking about it and funnily enough I talked to one of uh, a person who works at my marketing company and I asked her if she'd seen it she's young and and recently out of college and she said that her friends told her to watch it but only watch it when she has 13 hours where she can watch it all at once which means they're they're been binge watching it and I, I'm a little concerned about it. I am a little concerned. So what about, what about you? What did you think? I thought the book lent itself to a TV series format beautifully, where you have 13 reasons, 13 episodes, yep. and a story spread across 13 hours. You have to keep upping exactly. the stakes. Yep. It plays like a mystery slash thriller where it's so clear, right? The narrator from the other side is telling us there's only two rules. You have to listen to the tapes and pass them on. And I find this so gripping to watch because the mystery is being revealed to the characters at the same time it's getting revealed to us. So we're all in the dark. You're trying to figure out the role everyone played. They're trying to figure out why they're on the list. You don't know if it's a reliable narrator. Is Hannah telling the truth? Don't believe everything you hear. Totally true. It's like you keep unpeeling the onion. But again, what's the responsibility for programming to make sure that you don't put something out that glorifies something that could be a tragic end for a lot of people? That's my yeah. only concern. Okay, did you think it glorified suicide? Because I know there were, it seemed to me like they were definitely putting things in there to not glorify suicide. Just the suicide scene made it look painful. I know the producers have said what they also wanted to touch upon was how the people left behind when a suicide happens, how it affects them for the rest of their lives. Well, I was never bullied. And so, but from what I've read about those who are and the isolation that they feel, mm -hmm. um, and that part of exiting uh, or committing suicide around that psychologically has been about their only way to punish the, the other people. And so to me, you know, yeah, I'd be concerned. Psychologists are coming out and saying they're concerned. You know, it does give you an exit strategy where you get to tell your own story and rewrite your own history uh, to make it your own and publicly um, change the trajectory of what people are saying about you. So I don't know. I mean, it's, the book's been out for nine years, and it doesn't appear that it, the book had that kind of 
uh, reactionary result from putting it out there. But I don't know what will happen with the series. So, it, you know, it's too soon to really tell. But I, I, as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, my God, is this going to be is this going to look really cool to somebody who's sitting in her position, you know, where, you know, they told lies about her. I mean, the, the trajectory of how she got where she got is so, certainly understandable. It's ironic, Hollister. On the one hand, as I was watching it, knowing that she commits suicide, I kept thinking, is this going to be hard to watch in that way that the TV show 13, I found hard to watch, maybe it has something to do with that number 13, that we did a podcast about last year about Ivy Moxham, who was kidnapped for 13 years. And watching it, you th- when you first meet this character, albeit from the other side, you know, via flashbacks, again, beautifully done between the past and the present. I kept thinking, okay, she seems like a strong character who is speaking her mind. And this is one of the most disturbing things about suicide is that there's a line in this series that says, if you want to know what the signs are that some someone's suicidal, there are none. And so often people say that, that they're shocked when they realize who has committed suicide, because it's not always the person who's visibly troubled. Somebody could be suffering and their parents don't know, their best friends don't know to the degree they're suffering. And so when I think about it like that, it's extremely disturbing, the whole phenomenon of suicide. But as storytelling structure goes, I thought it was very gripping to watch. Oh, you know, it it is. I just think maybe we have to be careful who watches it and of what the conversation around it. And plus, they actually show her slitting her wrists in the last episode. And it is extremely powerful and it's extremely real. And interestingly enough, that's one of the things that people are writing a lot about now is that should not, should that have been in there or should it not have been in there? And the people who wrote it and the director all said they wanted it in there, they wanted it real, and they just didn't feel that it would be fair that she commits suicide, but nobody ever sees how, that it just Mm -hmm. needed to be in there. And it isn't extremely, I mean, how did you feel about that moment? Well, I know a lot of thought was given to this by the producers, and they said, look, suicide is the second highest cause of death amongst teenagers. It's happening. We need to talk about it. So there was a lot of discussion on these scenes, how it should be portrayed. And I know that Selena Gomez, who's one of the executive producers, she and two of the stars of the series, they got matching tattoos on their wrist, which again is such a powerful thought when you think about people slashing their wrists. It's the symbol is a small black semicolon. And this was the symbol popularized by an awareness organization called Project Semicolon, where it's supposed to be symbolic of choosing life over suicide. And so I know the people behind the making of the series, they were very conscious about it. And there's even a special episode, if you will, at the end. It's a special add-on video on Netflix where they talk about suicide and the issues brought up by this, which I think is a a great discussion guide to talking about some of these heavy, heavy things that are right. And I'm up. just, I'm not, I'm just not sure that the high schoolers are watching that episode and chatting about it amongst themselves in that way. I think it's a very educational way to look at it. And while I know they're all well-meaning, the producers, etc., but none of them are psychologists. And I, I want it, The world of psychology is saying that by showing it this way, it does make it easier to make that choice. It's less frightening. You know, there's nothing frightening about her dying. You know, she she doesn't wish that she hadn't done it. You know, um, you know, there's 
So, so does it make it easier to accept that choice is, is the concern around it. So I don't know what I think about it, but I also think that the person who plays her, Catherine uh, Langford plays Hannah, mm-hmm. who is the young woman who did it. And I think she did a brilliant job. She's so good. She's Australian and she was a nationally ranked swimmer in Australia. She nails the accent. She does. The only thing is she's so good at being a strong woman that I'm not sure I buy her choice. And I don't know if that was a choice in the way she acted it. Like maybe they helped her to show that she was strong, but you, and maybe it's to your point of, you know, you often don't see the signs in somebody mm-hmm. who's, who's going in that direction. But, um, but I thought she was just mesmerizing when she was on the screen and, and she's not, her voice is everywhere, but her actual physicality is, is sporadic. And so she needed to make her self-seen in those sporadic moments or her voice would have been lost. And I, I think she did it brilliantly. I do. And she does seem like this specter from the past. If I were writing a college paper on symbolism, I don't think it's a coincidence that her character's name was Hannah which is a palindrome. So it's spelled the same way forwards or backwards. Because she leaves these tapes behind, it's as though you're meeting her in the present tense because it's her voice telling the story where she's directing the narrative. Her story interweaves with Clay's where he's looking back, trying to literally navigate the map she's left behind of why she did it. Hannah, I'm not going. Not now. Not ever. Why didn't you say this to me when I was alive? Dylan Minette, who plays Clay. Do you know what other show we've talked about briefly on the podcast that he's been in? No, what? He was the son on Scandal. He was Jerry Grant Jr. Oh, I think they all played off each other well, and um, it's a really strong cast. Don't you agree? Absolutely. Kate Walsh is the mother. Brian Darcy James, who was nominated for a Tony for playing Shrek, plays the father. He was in Spotlight. My husband and I, we never got a note. And Tom McCarthy, who directed Spotlight, which of course won the Oscar for Best Film, he directed the first two episodes. And he's an executive producer on this. So again, kind of like Spotlight, he thought the content of this was very important to bring to the screen. (laughs) Two other people I wanted to mention in the cast, Amy Hargreaves, who plays Clay's mother. I'm sure you recognize her from Homeland. I did, yes. Yep, she plays Claire Danes' sister. Know, and she was also uh-huh. in the Preppy Connection. Yep. And in the first episode of 13 Reasons Why, I was very excited to see Lane from Gilmore Girls. I know, I yes, know. Yes, yeah. playing the teacher. Yep, yep. Yeah, she's moved on. She's grown up and she's got a degree and she doesn't have children anymore. And she's very different. <laughs> the series uh, is certainly, certainly worth watching and well acted and well written. And, you know, just overall has an incredibly strong uh, sense of self. And, you know, they're bringing in, Netflix is bringing in incredible content for all different age groups. Okay, so that wraps up this week. Wrap, it's a wrap. Oh my goodness, it's a wrap. I'm just so glad I'm on this side of high school. <laughs> I loved high school. I didn't feel that way at all.